you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. LAist Studios. Hi, everyone. This is Retake. I'm your host, John Horn. On this week's episode, a look ahead to next year's award shows, plus two compelling documentaries that are worth seeking out. The Stranger at the Gate tells the story of a U.S. Marine with a plan to bomb a mosque. The compassion he was met with from members of the congregation set him on a very different path. Unfortunately, for me, I had to be all the way over here in this ugly, dark place before I could come back here. But first, another documentary. You've likely heard of Robert Downey Jr., but what about his father and his work as a filmmaker? Senior on Netflix is about the relationship between actor Robert Downey Jr. and his father, the experimental director Robert Downey Sr., we're still happy with the title senior, are we not? Yeah, I like it, but we can we can do better. It's at times funny and also poignant. It also stands out because during the course of filming, one of the subjects, Robert Downey Sr., decided to put together his own cut and commandeered some of the crew to help. That included producer Kevin Ford, who I recently spoke with as part of a panel discussion about the film for the Producers Guild of America. Here he talks about the amount of time he was devoting to the project within the project. You'll hear him mention fellow producer and his wife, Emily Ford, and then hear from Robert Downey Jr. too. I remember a point being very concerned because I, I, I needed to be there to edit with Senior and it meant I was going to miss uh, a holiday. And Emily said, you have to stay with Senior. You will never regret it. That's what's important right now. We'll have many holidays down the road. You you have to be there for him. And so that's the kind of wife. I guarantee you, if dad was still here, we would be working on his cut or he'd be saying our cut still had no rhythm and you would be spending the Christmas holidays with him. <laughs> there would it interminable. To that note, the only reason I think that, Robert, you've indicated this before, but the only reason maybe his cut did get finished, he said to me, uh, in the lead up to that, he said, we got to hurry, kid. My window's closing. Here's more of my conversation with Robert Downey Jr. You'll hear from his wife, Susan, who's also a producer on the film. And as he mentions, I talked with him about the film at the Telluride Film Festival. Robert, uh, I think it's fair to say that the audience, and I hope you as well, learned something about your father in the making of this film. But I suspect there's something else that is true, and that might be that you learned something about yourself. Uh, there's this great line toward the end of the film when your father is not quite lucid, and he says to you, not recognizing you, have you met Junior? And you have this beautiful answer. And it's, yeah, we're getting to know each other. It's my favorite moment in the film. Can you talk a little bit about that moment? Because I really loved it. And I think you were speaking so purely from your heart in that moment. Yeah. Um, well, it's so funny. You know, it's the scientist is always affecting the experiment. And so to kind of bilocate and be able to say this thing, which happened to be that time that I spent in the room with him, where I thought I had my, my <laughs> final account agenda, this was it. 
And when I walked out, Kevin said, you know, how to go. And I, I was kind of like, I, I, I honestly, I don't think we got anything because I didn't even understand until we watched it back that what had happened was the only left turn that if you were telling this like a story story, it's the only one that wouldn't have been maudlin or saccharine or thing, but it was unexpected because of my own probably childish desire to have that Oz behind the curtain moment, you know, like I wanted the, I don't know what I thought it was I was going to get, but I thought I was finally going to have some control and some fucking answers. <laughs> Without getting too personal, I just came out of a Zoom therapy session with my therapist. And I said, have you seen this movie? And she said, yes. And she started talking about it. And the thing that she said that I thought was really meaningful and however you want to uh, comment on this, what she said was, I want to make sure I quote her accurately now. She said, it felt to me like they had made peace. They had accounted for what had happened without blaming one another. You know, we were talking to a friend the other night who had just watched it and called us and they were still sort of wiping the tears away. And her encapsulation was um, that it was a forgiving your parent. Mm -hmm. Like that's what so much of it was about was this journey. As much as it was senior's journey and his ability and how beautiful it is to give him the to do this thing he loved until the very end and for he and Robert to communicate with one another through film to the very end, which was their means of communicating. There was a part of it that was Robert on some level forgiving whatever those sort of trespasses were from the past. The other thing she said, which I love, it's like, I thought was brilliant because I've lived with this guy now, you know, known him almost 20 years. And she said, every time he had on one of those droopy beanies, I just knew I was going to be slayed because it was vulnerable Robert. Beanies meant vulnerable, Robert. And what was going to come up? <laughs> Robert, at the beginning of the film, you say, I have a feeling we'll know a lot more when we're done. And you can interpret that in any number of ways. How did you interpret the question and how would you interpret your answer to it? Oh, I didn't mean uh, when we were done with the documentary. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when the six of us are done and dusted oh, and well, no, um, it's very hard to control and enjoy at the same time and past a certain point, they say it takes a village, but how many in the village, this came down to a small group of people. And so when I say we, I mean, the, I mean, the Royal, we of everyone that I've been in dialogue with you now, several times. Thank you. Uh, the, all the best art evokes a dialogue immediately following the ingestion, perception, or viewing of the art. And not just because it's, you know, culturally bound to, you know, it's supposed to be, you know, huge. So I think the thing that I, I know now that, that we finished this process is that it really is this tribal thing where you tell a story, you tell a story a certain way. And then at the end of that story, people say, oh, it's kind of about the story is a metaphor for this. And it starts them on these other tangents because people have talked to us about everything except father and son relationships after seeing this 
what on the surface would be considered a father-son forgiveness story. So it's like any good piece of anything. It just, it starts a dialogue and then it becomes, it, it, it's, it goes into this larger conversation. And that's what I think we couldn't have known. Had we succeeded, we didn't know until we really saw it in Telluride for the first time, in New York for the first time, in San Francisco at the Castro, where my dad would have been like, now here's a theater in the UK just now and wrapping it up with you. We've actually done this whole little circle with you where you kind of said, I think it will be perceived in my senses. And I mean, dude, you're talking to us about what your shrink said about it now. It's like, it's crazy. <laughs> it's taking on these dimensions that, that transcend a interview or a piece of content and, or any of that stuff. So my takeaway is, wow, how could you ever do something like that again on purpose? Could you? Senior is available on Netflix now. It's directed by Chris Smith. Coming up, the documentary Stranger at the Gate. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. We took Retake Live recently with a screening of the new documentary, Stranger at the Gate, followed by a panel discussion at KPCC in Pasadena. To find out about the next one, if you're local, sign up for our weekly email newsletter at elias.com newsletters. But if you weren't there in person, we have a version of the discussion for you to listen to now. When I first saw him, I remember saying that there's something not right with this guy. It was a little scary. He seemed to be like a redneck. He was walking kind of fast, his head was kind of down, pacing back and forth. Those are members of the Muncie Islamic Center in the trailer from Stranger at the Gate, talking about the first time they encountered U.S. Marine Richard Mack McKinney. What happened next could have been horrific, but because of the congregants themselves and their remarkable kindness, the story took an amazing turn. Despite McKinney's declared hatred of Muslims, they invite him into the mosque and begin talking to him. McKinney slowly gets to know them and Islam, and eventually he is so impressed with what he sees and what he hears that he actually converts to the religion. Here's my conversation about what happened and about the film with Mac McKinney, fellow subject of the film Bibi Barami, director Joshua Seftel, and executive producer Lena Khan. Mac started off by explaining what his intentions were the day he decided to go to the Islamic Center in Muncie, Indiana. What I had wanted to do was get the information that I needed to prove that these were bad people. And... To get that proof, I needed to go to the source. I mean, I, I wasn't scared. I mean, I did feel uneasy being around them at first, but I wasn't scared. But I needed that. I needed that to be able to prove the way I felt was right. And that's why I went. But I think it's fair to say that, in this case, Allah works in mysterious ways. Because had you not gone there to confirm 
your hatred, you wouldn't have had your heart opened and seen this community for what it is. Well, and that's very true. I always thought my destiny was to come home in a flag draped coffin. I was good with that. Because in this country, you're forever known as a hero, man. It don't matter. But I learned we don't pick our destinies. They're picking for us. Or they're chose for us. I don't want to sound like I'm from Indiana here. <laughs> they're picking for us. <laughs> so, so, but, you know, our creator, he predestines our our destinies in life. And, and mine was actually to bring change. And unfortunately, for me, I had to be all the way over here in this ugly dark place before I could come back here. And that's why he put people like Bibi in my life. I, I can never, in, in a million years, thank her. You know, I, I used the line one time, seems to have caught on, that there is not enough ink in the world to write the thank you notes that I need to write to her and the community for what they've done to me because she saved my life, she saved her life, and she saved the life of the whole community because we would have all, well, by now my appeals would have ran out, so I probably would have been executed, but, you know, I mean, we, we all would have been gone. Joshua, I'd like to ask you about when you first heard about the story and started thinking about how to tell it because as remarkable as the story is, it's also deeply personal to the participants and in a way very private as well. Yeah. I, thank you, John. Uh, I, um, I read about this story in a, in a newspaper article and, you know, I was like, could this be real, you know? And I, at the time I was making a series about, um, about American Muslims called Secret Life of Muslims. I grew up facing a lot of anti-Semitism and when I saw what happened after 9-11 in this country and the Islamophobia that was going on, I felt like, you know, I felt a connection and I felt like I could do something uh, with film. So I started telling these stories about American Muslims and this was actually the 25th film in the series, this film tonight. And, you know, I just, uh, when I, I, first I found Mac and I, we brought him to New York and we interviewed him and then I, we thought like, we've got to find the congregants. So we were trying to find Bibi and Sabra and couldn't find them. Couldn't, they, uh, they never answered, we called and, and then I found out that Bibi had been very ill and was actually, had been in a coma and she had just come out of the coma and we finally reached her and, you know, well, you can talk about <laughs> it, but that was the moment when she, she said, this, like, this is meant to be, this film is meant to be, I, this is what I want to do with my life now that I, that you, I mean, you almost died, right? And you, and so this film is very important to Bibi, I think. Yeah. Wow. It was amazing, you know, how, I mean, this is part of my life. I've been helping in my local, local community. I'm very much involved with the university, with the mayors. I've been part of different board, Rotarian. I serve on different capacity and volunteerism. I've been totally blessed. But in fighting Islamophobia was one of my things. I say, you know, I have three beautiful daughters who is covering. I brought them to this country. We chose this country by choice. And if I can make it better with whatever capacity I have, I would love to do that. And as I came, God gave me a second chance to live. I'd say, you know, I'm doing that through my personal effort in my community. 
this will happen, this film, um, this uh, documentary, I don't know if it's going to get to this level, but will be a message, positive message for humanity, even if I'm dead. I was dead, I came back to life, and there may be a reason. And when he gave me his story, it was so compelling, touching my heart, that, oh my God, it's a beautiful message. Mac, in telling this story and in making this film, you are revealing so much about yourself and about how you struggled um, with this hatred. Is it hard for you to even watch the film or think about the person you were before? And is this experience difficult for you? I, I would be lying if I said no. Um, it is difficult in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm ashamed of the person I used to be. You know, there is a level of self-forgiveness that I still have not been able to reach. You know, and that's a personal thing. It's, it's a journey, right? And I'm still on that journey. Um, with this film, it, 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 it makes me feel that much closer to accomplishing what I'm supposed to accomplish. Because this movie is called action. That's what it's about. You know, it's not about me. It's about somebody who met somebody he didn't like, was able to change the way he thought about those people. It, 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 and it, if you think this movie was about Islam, you really didn't pay attention. Please watch it again. Because it wasn't. It was about hatred. It was about our shared humanity. It's about who we are as human beings that we don't even want to realize that we are so much alike. It's scary. And I think that's a big thing. It's scary. You know, I don't care whether you're Christian, whether you're Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, it doesn't matter. We're still here. We still have a job to do in society, and that's to make this life a better place for everybody. You know, I, I, I am going to say everybody in the audience, I'm pretty sure, is probably 25 plus. Right? We got a whole generation coming up. You know, for some of us, maybe it's too late. I don't know. We got a whole other generation coming up. There's the change. There it is. When this first film came out, the very first Secret Life of Muslims came out, you know, Josh talked to me and said, well, you know, there's going to be a lot of comments. Guarantee not all of them are going to be good. He was not wrong. Even though most of the comments were positive, there were some hateful ones. I'm a traitor. I should just kill myself. Blah, 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 right? Whatever. But there was one in particular, and there was, there was other nice ones, but this one in particular really stood out to me because this is what made it all worthwhile. And like you said, how I feel about putting my life out there, this is what made it worthwhile. This guy, in a very colorful way, because he talks the way I used to, but I'll, the PG version is, if a tough guy like you can change the way he thinks about things, I guess I can too. That's what this film is about. Not about my conversion. Not about the difference between religions. You know? It's, it's just the, be the beauty of humanity and what we are cheating ourselves by not doing this. And we can't blame it on anybody else. It's our fault. It's our fault. We got to act. I want to ask Joshua and Lena about the role that 
entertainment, Hollywood, pop culture has in promulgating stereotypes. Uh, Stacy Smith, who's done some great research at USC as part of her Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, looked at Hollywood and Muslims in it. It's a very, spoiler, it's a very short and unhappy book. Here are the numbers. In TV, they looked at the identity of more than 6,000 writers, directors, and producers across 128 US, US series. Less than 1% of those people were Muslim. By the way, if you don't know, Muslims account for a quarter of the Earth's population, 24 to 25%. Film, across 1,500 top grossing films from 2007 to 2021, there were only 12, 11 men and one woman, Muslims that worked as directors, writers, or producers. But this is where it's really damaging. Out of 9,000 characters in the top grossing films from 2017 to 2019, 1.6% were Muslim. And without getting to the numbers, I can tell you most of them were not playing heroes. They were playing villains and they were playing terrorists. So when you think about the role that the film business has in creating images and what you're working against, and Lena, what you're probably dealing with trying to sell your work, how would you describe what the industry needs to do and where you see it going? Um. Yeah, I'm very familiar with that study, and I feel like I deal with this every day ever since I entered this industry. When I was young, I remember my mom taking us to where like, the Muslim community was going to, I think WB, where um, the siege was coming out. And I was young, and I still remember how hard that was for the Muslim community. Like, there was a terrorist who went on board, and before he did, they made sure they showed him like doing the ritual washing before he prays and all those things. If and you things, don't know, this is an Edward Zwick film that, to my mind, is one of the most hateful movies about Islam that any American filmmaker has ever made. Continue. Yeah, and it was really formative to me when I was young, and I thought things would change so much. And small things have changed, but by and large, I think what do they always say? You're either, when they show Muslims, they're billionaires, belly dancers, or bombers, for the most part. I will add, or they're <laughs> abused women, or... Things, then there's a, there's a few outliers, and it's really hard, and now I actually work in film and TV, and I've seen it, and I can't say too much about you know, which shows this and that. And I did my own controlled studies. It is easier for me to put a nun in the background walking by. Does that happen very often? It does not happen very often. I can get a nun to walk by in the background of a scene easier than I can get a woman with a headscarf, which you see all the time. Because people have people involved, and there are, a lot, there are a lot of open shows, but they just have an association that if they're there, like, no, they need to be there for a storyline about how they're being oppressed or whatever it is, a Muslim center. You don't see BBs on the show. And nowadays you're having some perceptions, but Hollywood has this thing where they don't want to show a practicing Muslim in a normal or positive way. And I don't know what it is, and we're trying to tackle it. Um, and so it's really lovely to see a movie like this. I was like, thank God, you know? One last question for Mac and BB, and that is, what's going on at the mosque now? I, I suspect there's a refugee movement, uh, probably some Afghan refugees that are coming into the city. Tell us what's, what gets you excited about, about the work at the mosque right now. I, I, I call my community a beautiful Muncia, the city. Uh, I always refer to it that. I say, within well, my ability, if I can make it shine to the whole world, I'll make it shine. That beautiful community, small community, we were able to bring. That's again blessing of my connection with the Afghan in the camp in the State Department, and I work with the resettlement agency, Catholic Charity, and Exodus. 
was able to bring uh, 27, no, 37 families mm. and 127 people. And that was not easy. We provided everything from uh, housing to essentials. I mean, I remember ordering essential for a family. It took me hours to, from A to Z to cover everything. We prepared the house and we'll bring a family from the camp. That's what I said, like other big city like Indianapolis and Fort Wayne and Lafayette, the surrounding city contacted me that what was your magic and you share your model with us. We were not able to bring even one family. We have two families that we're working with. And we had a hard time. How did you do this? I said, again, it's a beautiful Muncie and a beautiful community. I brought everybody on board in all the churches. I'm also co-founder of an interfaith group and just to bring everybody on the board. I said, instead of every church helping, let's combine our effort. Instead of one family, instead of five, we can bring 15, 20, and over 30, above and beyond. That was the success of our unity, whether it was, uh, I don't really care about parties, Republican, Democrat, all parties were part of it. Everybody was part of this project, <laughs> and that's why we were so successful. We were very blessed, and it was very, Good example to the others, and I share that model. The Islamic Center is accommodating all of them. Their children are coming to the Sunday school. Uh, every Sunday, we're taking care of them, and that's part of their religious part, and they're part of the large community. They all have a job contributing. We had over 500 jobs open. Some of the factories are surviving because of them. We're very blessed to have them. We call them new neighbors, not refugees. Wow. And Mac, I'm going to give you the last minute uh, of your thoughts about what's going on in the mosque and, and uh, anything else you'd like to share. Well, first of all, just to caveat off of, off of Bibi, that's why she's the hero. <laughs> yeah. You know, Bibi showed just in this action she's done, it was just the Afghan resettlement. Oh, my gosh. You had every walk of life had a hand in this in our community. See, that's what happens, you know? There's a saying in the Quran, it says, you know, God split us up into different nations and tribes so that we can learn from one another. Now, I always say this, if we would have actually done that, we'd have made COVID look like a head cold. <laughs> I want to thank everybody for showing up. I really want to thank our panel. I want to thank Lena, I want to thank Bibi, I want to thank Joshua and Mac for sharing your life and your journey with us. Thank you very much. Thanks, Charlie. We'll see you outside. You can find a video of our full conversation about Stranger at the Gate at kpcc.org slash events. You'll also find a link there to watch the film in its entirety. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. And finally, here's my weekly entertainment news chat with KPCC Morning Edition host Suzanne Watley. 
It is almost the end of the year, and that's when we start to hear from film critics and other awards organizations about their favorite movies from 2022. Anything stand out to you so far? Well, I think we have to start with the Boston Society of Film Critics because they just announced their winner for Best Ensemble, and it was a tie. So one winner was writer-director Sarah Pauly's Women Talking, which I think you know is my favorite movie you of the year. love that one. Love that movie. The other Best Ensemble winner from the Boston Critics, and I'm not making this up, was Jackass Forever. And Sarah Polly, <laughs> being the genius that she is, tweeted on uh, social media, nothing can ever top this. I'm retiring now. So yes, Women Talking and Jackass Forever in a showdown for the Boston critics. All right. Well, that's one whopper. Are there others? Well, maybe, depending on your point of view. I was having dinner over the weekend with some friends, three of whom are members of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and we were talking first about some of the best documentaries of the year. And it's been a great year for docs. Laura Poitras's All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which is about artist Ann Golden's campaign to get museums to remove the Sackler family name because of their role in the opioid epidemic. Brett Morgan's Moon Age Daydream, a great documentary about David Bowie. And Wildcat, my favorite documentary of the year, about a British soldier named Harry Turner who goes to the Peruvian rainforest to try to deal with his PTSD. And then I asked uh, this group about who they thought was going to win Best Picture or at least the favorite to win Best Picture. And maybe this clip will help explain their answer. The end is inevitable, Maverick. You kind of set it for extinction. Maybe so, sir. But not today. I recognize that movie, and it is not Jackass Forever, right? It is not. That is Top Gun Maverick, which was also named Best Picture by the National Board of Review. It's an interesting story because the Oscar ratings have been collapsing. Even before the pandemic, they were going down sharply. And a lot of people think that's because there's never a popular film. You know, it's art films and never a big blockbuster. But there are a lot of experts who, you know, whose jobs are predicting Best Picture nominees and winners. And a couple of them think that Top Gun Maverick is not only a favorite to get nominated, but a favorite to win. So, listen, it was an enjoyable movie. The Academy needs a lot more people to watch the Oscars because last year's show, even though it was a big improvement from 2021, was still the second lowest Oscars in terms of viewership since Nielsen started tracking the show. So they need an audience for the Oscars and a big hit like Top Gun Maverick would probably bring some more people back. Right. People would love to see Tom Cruise in the audience. Definitely. Uh, Let's talk about what is essentially the Oscars for lower budgeted movies, uh, typically made outside the studio system, the Film Independent Spirit Awards. The nominations are out. And in fact, sometimes films can win both a Spirit Award and an Academy Award. What are some of the highlights from the Spirit List? Well, first of all, the idea of lower budget today is not what you would consider lower budget in the real world. The film independent raised that budget level to $30 million. So that's what's considered a low budget film these days. So everything, (laughs) everywhere, all at once got a leading eight nominations. It is a fantastic movie. If you haven't seen it, you've got to go see it. The best feature nominees were Bones and All, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, Our Father, the Devil, Tar, 
and my favorite movie, Women Talking. Among studios, Netflix didn't do very well. They have a really good movie called The Wonder and the best foreign language movie of the year, I think, All Quiet on the Western Front, did not make the film independent list, but I am fairly certain it will make documentary feature when the Oscar nominations are out. All right. The Film Independent Spirit Awards are happening March 4th, a returning to the beach in Santa Monica. And this week it released its list of television nominees, and I am pleased to see my new favorite series, Severance from Apple TV Plus among the top nominees. That got three nominations, also getting three nominations, The Bear from FX, uh, Abbott Elementary, which is ABC's sitcom, and HBO's Station Eleven. Thanks so much, John. Uh, My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Retake. We'll see you again next week. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS newsroom. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.